Unfortunately, the start of this recording has been missed. We apologize for the inconvenience. This is a Woodside Church podcast. Crucifixion, shedding of blood, things like this sounds repulsive, tasteless, mythical and fictional. It doesn't sound attractive and doesn't grab much attention. 2,000 years from the actual event, the cross to many has become a theological term or more often a piece of jewelry. A 2015 survey conducted by the Church of England found that 22% of adults did not believe that Jesus was a real person. So church, today's topic is very emotive and the last thing I want to do is to stir up emotion. What I want to do is to take you through God's eternal plan and underpin your emotions and passions and you know, everything that you do on knowledge, understanding, and truth. And we have to do this particularly for a younger generation, and um, uh, particularly for a younger generation. If we do not give them this foundation of truth, or rather, if we do not have this foundation of truth, then our faith is going to fall apart when we face trials and challenges of life. And what we are going to look at today is part of the mystery that was hidden in God for ages and now revealed after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in my preach today, I'm going to answer four questions. And questions are important. Remember, I I mentioned this time and time again. For any student, any person in this life, we have to ask questions of ourselves. We have to ask questions of others. Not questioning them for the sake of questioning, but questioning to learn, to know, to dissect the subject that we are trying to understand or study. So the four questions that we're going to look at today are, what is the crucifixion all about? Was the crucifixion really necessary? What happened at the crucifixion? And finally, what did the crucifixion achieve? Now let's look at the first one, what is the crucifixion all about? That is the easiest one, okay? The crucifixion is all about the crucifixion and death of Jesus on a Roman cross in the early part of the first century. Now this is a historical fact based on both Christian and non-Christian writings dating back to the first century. So the Christian you know, evidence comes from the New Testament writers who wrote the Gospels and the Epistles. Whereas the non-Christian evidence comes from the writings of historians like uh, Josephus and Tacitus and Suetonius and the governor Pliny the Younger. So the crucifixion is not fictional, it is something that happened for real. So that's it, okay? Anything beyond that is beyond the scope of this preach. Now second question is, was the crucifixion really necessary? Now to understand this, we really need to turn to the Bible. Now, on a previous occasion, I had taught why the Bible is a believable document, okay? Compared to all the religious texts out there, and that God revealed himself through the Bible in such a manner that he can be proved to be real using modern statistical methods. If anyone wants to know more about this, you come and find me, and, you know, I will explain all of those things to you. And if you want to come to my house for a discussion, you'll get a free meal as well cooked by my my wife, who's very good at cooking, okay? 
And uh, so let me take you through some key points in biblical history. The first time the Bible talks about sacrifice is in chapter three of the book of Genesis, the first book in the, in the, in the, in, in the Bible. This happened after the first sin was committed, first sin or the original sin, the, you know, many people describe it, was committed by Adam and Eve. We see that an animal was killed and God used its skin to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. The second reference we find is in the Passover. You know, we find that in the second book, in the book of Exodus, and Hudson spoke about it you know, quite extensively a few weeks ago. Uh, the blood of uh, lambs, without blem- the, uh, lambs without blemish were taken, and they were sacrificed, and his blood taken and applied on the, on the t- uh, tops and sides of the door frames of the houses to protect the firstborn from dying. The third one is actually taken from the third key reference, is actually in the third book of the Bible, okay, the book of Leviticus, which is where the law was given. And if you turn to the 16th chapter of Leviticus, this is where God is introducing the Day of Atonement. Okay? And uh, the Jews at present celebrate a watered-down version of the Day of Atonement, and they call it the Yom Kippur. Now, you may have heard, heard of that. So this was to be kept on the, every year on the 10th day of the seventh month. Now, speaking about the seriousness of sin, God stated that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. So on that day, the day of atonement, the high priest, after ceremonially cleansing himself, would take two goats, okay? And uh, so one goat would be taken, and I'm, I'm doing a very quick version. So one goat would be taken, and it would be killed, and his blood taken into the Holy of Holies, The Holy of Holies is the place in the temple where the presence of God was. And so God said, and there was a curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And so only once a year, one person, the high priest, could enter this Holy of Holies, and that too only with blood, because God considered sin a serious problem. And so this blood was an atonement for the sins of this priest, and of all the Israelites waiting outside. So the blood is taken, one lamb is sacrificed, the blood is taken into the Holy of Holies and presented before the Lord as an atonement for his own sins and the sins of all the Israelites. And then the high priest would take the second goat and place his hands on the head of the goat and uh, confess the sins of all the Israelites over this goat. This goat is called the scapegoat, and this goat would then be taken and released into the wilderness, and the idea is that the sins of the people are taken away from the Israelite camp. So by this act, two things were achieved. The sins of the worshippers were atoned for, and their sins were taken away from them. So this atoning, you know, is taken from the Greek word called kapar, which means to cover, okay? So the sins are covered so that God doesn't see them. Okay? But the New Testament reminds us that this was an imperfect system. It was only covered. Okay? It didn't uh, you know, cleanse the conscience of the worshippers and was only a shadow of something perfect that was going to come. Okay? Now then, moving on to other 
key you know, points. You know, after this you know, perfect uh, sacrifice, or, or after this um, day of atonement and everything was instituted, God then you know, uh, allowed many prophecies about this perfect sacrifice to come out. So there have been a number of prophecies about a savior who would come and offer this perfect sacrifice. And we found this in the book of Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, and so on and so forth. All these events show us that God had a plan of bringing this perfect sacrifice and he gave us an indication of what was going to come. So let's look at a few of these verses. The, the clearest you know, that we find is in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And look, let's look at a few of these verses. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then later on in verse 11, it says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. You see, after the crucifixion, it's so easy to understand the meaning of this passage. Before that, no one could understand the meaning of this passage. And then, fast forwarding to the first century, Jesus has appeared on the scene, and he has started his public ministry. And the first time John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we see that in John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus himself spoke very clearly about his mission. In John 3, he told Nicodemus, I mean, the same as what Ron brought this morning. You know, he told Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and then he will draw everyone to himself. And then we find in Mark chapter 8, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days, rise again. Jesus has a clear understanding of his mission. This is why he has come. And then in John 12, he says, you know, he says about, you know, um, a, a, a kernel of wheat falling down and dying, okay? And when it dies, it then gives rise to many seeds. And then he says, it was for this very reason I came to this hour, okay? So it's very clear to see that the crucifixion was necessary, Okay, a sacrifice was necessary, and it was in the plan of God for this to happen. And He, you know, throughout the you know history of the church, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is a clear reminder of what was going to come. So that is the second question. Now let's go to the third question: What happened at the crucifixion? So let's look at a few points. The first thing is that Jesus voluntarily offered himself for this. He clearly knew the time. He clearly knew why he had come. He clearly knew what was going to happen. And he warned his disciples on several occasions. And we heard all about it at the Last Supper, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
in the last few weeks, we've been hearing about this. And he encouraged them to keep watch and pray with him. So he knew when he would entrust himself and he presented himself at the right spot at the right time. So he voluntarily offered himself. The second is the physical suffering that he endured you know, at the, on the cross. So he was flogged or whipped several times with a Roman whip. Now, Roman whip is designed to inflict maximum pain and damage. It had lead balls attached to it in order to rip out the flesh. It was designed to weaken a person before crucifixion. And then a thorn of crowns was pushed down upon his head. And he was made to carry a heavy cross. And when he, you know, collapsed under the weight of the cross, you know, the Romans forced someone else to carry that cross. When they came to this place called Golgotha, Jesus was stretched upon the cross and the nails were pierced through his hands onto the wood, okay? Through his hands and his ankles. And then they would take the cross and then drop it into a hole in the ground to, you know, keep it upright. Just imagine the pain that, you know, that you would undergo when, when you do this. Now, that is not the greatest, you know, pain. The greatest pain is when you take a breath in. You know, people who have studied this extensively say that the person who is crucified dies from asphyxiation. That means, you know, they are not able to breathe properly. In order to breathe, this is my own speciality, okay? In order to breathe, you know, you have to move your chest. You have to open up, your your muscles have to open up your chest. That means for a person lying on the cross, they have to raise themselves up on the cross to breathe. Breathing out was easy, you just have to let go and the air would come out. And because of the pain caused by lifting, you know, him on the cross, the pain would be excruciating. You know, the breath would be so shallow and eventually you die from asphyxiation, not able to breathe. He was then finally pierced with a, with a spear and we find that blood and water flowed out. So that was physical suffering on the cross. The next is public humiliation. He was spatted, slapped, mocked by both Jews and Romans and also the crowd. He was stripped naked and hung on the cross in full public display and in front of his mother and his loved ones. And this church is God, the one who made everything, our creator, the creator of this universe. And the next thing was when he was on the cross, he carried the sin of the world upon him. And this is why the Bible describes this as substitutionary sacrifice. And Apostle Paul speaking about this says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. This, I love this. This is, this is beautiful. I call this the great exchange. Okay. When on the cross, Jesus took the sins of the whole world upon himself. And when we come to him, and when we put our trust in him, you know, we are given his righteousness. The righteousness of God is imputed on us. The great exchange. Hallelujah. All because of what he did on the cross. And uh, Isaiah 53 says that he took up our infirmities, our sins. 
Peter, speaking about this in 1 Peter, says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The next thing that happened on the cross when he was crucified was, and this was the most painful thing for him, was that he was separated from his father. You see, until then, Jesus was always in fellowship with the Father and reminded his listeners repeatedly that he is one with his Father. But when he was on the cross he was, and was carrying our sin upon his body, the Father separated himself from Jesus. And this is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only one person in the Trinity of God could carry this sin, and Jesus had volunteered himself for this. And this was also his greatest agony and one of the reasons why he was in such anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew that when he was carrying the sins of the world, your sins and my sins and the sins of the world, the Father would separate you know, from, from him. And finally, finally, when he was on the cross, the full force of the wrath of God against the sin of mankind was unleashed on Jesus and he bore it all himself. Church, the punishment that you and I should have received was poured down upon Jesus in full. He did not open his mouth as we read in Isaiah 53. He did not open his mouth. He was silent. He bore the suffering of his soul with such dignity and composure for you and for me. The Old Testament writers writing about this write, he trod the winepress of God's wrath alone. He trod the winepress of God's wrath alone. There was no one to help him. He did what the two goats did on the day of atonement. He carried our sins upon him and his blood, his innocent sinless blood was shed for the remission of our sins. He did not take this, as the New Testament writers write, he did not take it into a man-made sanctuary. He went with his blood into the presence of God in heaven. Hallelujah. Interceding for us. Interceding for us. Hallelujah. And making atonement for sin so that our sins will not only be covered, but it will be forgiven and forgotten once for all. Hallelujah. And this is what happened at the cross, my friends. So finally, what did the crucifixion achieve? In John chapter 19, we find Jesus said, it is finished. The Greek Bible uses the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. You see, in those days, when the traders used to do their trading, and when an invoice was settled, they would put the stamp, paid in full, tetelestai, okay? That means everything is settled. And, the, and what Jesus was trying to say was, the price of atonement has been paid in full. The perfect sacrifice has been offered once and for all. There is no more any sacrifice left for the remission of sins. Secondly, he broke the power of the devil. He broke the power of sin and of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer writes, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. 
And Apostle Paul, celebrating this fact, writes in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The power of death is gone. The power of sin is gone. Hallelujah. Symbolically, when Jesus died on the cross, many tombs burst open and the bodies of many holy people who had died previously came back to life. And Jesus himself in Revelation 1.18 says, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold it. Hallelujah. And when he died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn into two. I reminded you previously, the curtain separated the worshipers from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. When Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice on the cross, he was opening a new and living way for all of us to come into the presence of God. The splitting of the curtain into two was symbolic of this. By this act, God is saying, everyone is welcome into my presence. After the resurrection, Jesus commands disciples to go into all the world, starting from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, and to extend this invitation to everyone. This, my church, is the gospel. This is the good news. God has provided the perfect sacrifice for everyone. If there is anyone listening to me today and you have not heard this message, I am inviting you to come and meet the Savior. The church is inviting you to come and meet the Savior and experience the salvation that God has prepared for all mankind. You are invited into his kingdom. He has opened the door for you to come. When the thief who was crucified along with Jesus said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. Jesus died for the thief as well. So let me bring this all together. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, God said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So God is a perfect judge, set the cost of sin. God is a perfect judge. He's perfect in love, but he's also perfect in justice. So God set the cost of sin. If you sin, you will die. You see, church, when you and I have sinned, which we have the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. You see, we don't become sinners by committing sin. We commit sin because we have this disease called sin. So we have this disease called sin the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. And as soon as we are conceived, we are under this death penalty, which means we have to pay with our own life and then nothing remains. So church, we are helpless from the moment we are conceived. And it's only God who knows our helpless situation. And this is why Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, my friends, God is a perfect judge. He's the one who demands this death penalty, but he is also the one who pays it on your behalf and my behalf and on behalf of everyone in this world. In order to represent us, he took up human form, had flesh and blood, and it is his sinless life 
that was worthy enough to make full payment for you and for me and for everyone else in this world. So church, my question to you is, what do you feel when you look at the cross? And what do you think about the crucifixion of Christ? What do you see? What do you feel? I see pure, unadulterated, sacrificial love. I see the highest expression of love. Jesus himself said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He loved us so much, church, that he gave himself over fully to rescue us from the power of sin and death and to make us his children, to make us his people. So how, church, would you respond to this love? He's asking us to be his ambassadors, his spokesperson to all around us. How would you respond, church? Could you or would you walk an extra mile with someone? Could you or would you say hello to someone or greet someone in the name of Jesus? Would you ask Jesus, Jesus, give me the passion that is in you. Give me the love that is in you. When I go out of my house and meet people on the street, give me the passion that is in you. Would you tell someone that Jesus loves you? Would you tell someone that Jesus died on the cross for you? Would you tell someone that you are welcome into the kingdom of God? Everything has been done for you. There is good news. Hallelujah. When everything within you says, I can't or I won't, I would tell you, church, look at the cross. See your Lord hung there for you and what he has done for you. Let your response be dictated by what he has done for you. Whatever you do, remember this one thing, that it was his sinless life that was worthy enough to make full payment for your sins, for my sins, and for everyone else's sin. Let us worship him. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.